Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello and welcome once again to Dark Unicorn in Conversation. It's been a pleasure over the course of this series to, on a a number of occasions, speak to friends who have made their mark in the arts industries. Today is no exception. Timothy J. Howe, started life in Nottingham and spent his childhood and youth in Northamptonshire, but first crossed my path as a first-year undergraduate in 2007, when he made his presence felt on the seafront in Aberystwyth, where he was studying and I was lecturing. He, in fact, was in the same year group as Chloe Gale, now the burlesque artist Cadbury Parfait, whom we focused on a few weeks ago but where many of his contemporaries went into performing or stage management or even out of the industries altogether, Tim chose to focus on the impact that theatre could have in communities, and particularly with young people. He has spent much of his professional life working as a paid employee of a number of institutions which have furthered the role of the arts with young people, whether that be the Kids Are Us uh, Youth Theatre in St Ives in Cornwall, where he was their productions director, or to as wildly different an institution as possible, at Eton College, where he was the resident theatre director from 2014 to 15, a period during which I also consulted on some of his shows. Now he is the Communities and Creative Engagement Coordinator at the Sherman Theatre in Cardiff working not only with their youth theatre and their adult amateur group, but also with outreach and work within the communities which Cardiff and the Shermans serve. When we sat down to speak, we started, as as so often we do, looking at early life, and when theatre first made its presence felt in his own existence. I'd say we've known each other a little while now, um, but um, while I was present for the start of your tertiary education, um, you sort of read in the intro, I, I, I did lecture Timothy Dwayne's degree, but I, I wasn't there for the really early stuff. So um, t- 
tell me, do at what point did you realise that you were a theatre kid? Oh God, um, I don't know really. Um, perhaps looking back on it, you know, when you reflect on these things, when you actually have time to process, as we have all done over the last few months of kind of having moments of reflection, I suppose. Um, I think it began way back in my childhood with uh, my sibling. I was very lucky to be in a family of three and with a um, an older sister who governed through force of personality. Um, and if we were going to play a game, it was going to be, she was in charge and there were rules and we were going to play schools, we were going to play this game, whatever. So we were already doing um, role play. I think looking back on it now, you know, and there's that, you know, the idea that children have limitless imaginations and limitless worlds. And we only had one television and it seems really bizarre now, doesn't it? That we had one television in the whole house um, and it was this tiny little box in the corner of the room and television time was 6.30 in the evening until, you know, 7.30. Um, and, you know, so the rest of our days were filled with playing and being creative. And I think our parents, I, I was incredibly lucky that our parents had that set up in our house, you know, that we were, you know, visiting someone else's house who had Sky was like mind blowing. You know, people had more than two televisions in their house. I mean, why would you need more than two televisions in your house? Um, I think because we had all that gameplay and role play as children and we created all these imaginary worlds around the house. I'm painting this picture of this very, um, I don't know, like idyllic growing up. I'm not going to say it wasn't, but you know, it was full of imaginative play. So we were already creating these things and we all took it in turns to create these worlds. And I think that was when I realized that disappearing into imagined worlds and uh, creating these environments was a little bit more fun than being in the real world because you could be who you wanted to be and you could make other people be who you wanted them to be. Um, it just feels like I'm something I'm an Enid Blyton novel right now. Um, but um, yeah, so that's, that's, I suppose, looking back, that's where it began. And then I just sort of went from there with, you know, the classic stuff with schools. Um, the most frustrating thing for me at school was that my brother and I, um, although there's uh, almost two years between us, with only one school year, because I'm September birthday and he's in the summer, who constantly would be paired together in things. So they'd be like, oh, they can do that thing together because they're brothers and they can rehearse at home. Uh, and um, yeah, that was, that was slightly frustrating, particularly as he does, doesn't quite have the same passion um, for the arts as I do. Um, so, you know, I think early on there, I was going, oh, maybe, maybe someone needs to tell these people what to do because they don't know what to do. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, second education was all about uh, just discovering myself. And I think I found... Um, I, I always think looking back on my life and looking at the different things as certain places and locations and um, environments that you just feel at home in, don't you? You know, you just feel at home. And uh, I think that was how I felt about drama at school was I just, there was something safe about the studio that we had at school. And again, we're incredibly lucky to have that space. And, um, you know, and, and just, I had, I don't know, I just felt at home in that. So then it just flourished from there, you know, um, and you just progressed. It was quite exciting. We did like the, the full scale musicals at school. Um, and then we went into this 
we had this music teacher um, who did the shows. You know, I think every school has this teacher who goes, I'm doing the shows. I did that's my job alongside all the other stuff I have to do. Um, and she was just incredible. She cared so much about the shows and doing them and giving us that experience. And we, um, we used the local uh, big theater um, at the time. And, you know, it, was, it, had, it had proper stalls and a balcony and it, it, it felt like a proper theater. You know, and we weren't in the school hall. We weren't in this, our small studio at school. We were in this proper theatre. And these were huge musicals we did. Um, and I remember I did a few, um, I, a few as lead, as lead characters. So we did Sing in the Rain um, and we did Les Mis and, um, and amongst other various like variety shows, you know, the stock stuff that schools do to make money so they can do the bigger shows. Um, and I distinctly remember the day she walked into, um, there was a group, she'd created a, a group called the Musical Theatre Workshop Group. Uh, and she took us in and took us through all these different things and like um, through acting through song, uh, improving our like writing ability and all sorts of stuff. I mean, incredibly lucky that we had this woman who cared enough to do this. And I remember walking into the room in September of my, my A2 year you know, as if we didn't have enough on our plate already, this teacher decided to throw this thing at us and go, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna write the show this year. Sorry? You, you're gonna write the show. So we wrote the school show, um, you know, from scratch, book, music, script. Um, and then at, just after Christmas, she then threw another curveball, which was, yeah, and you're gonna do everything else as well. So one of you is gonna be the musical director, one of you is gonna be the choreographer, one of you is gonna be the producer, stage manager. So she, basically made us interview like hardcore interview process for all these roles um so you have to go in pitch your ideas talk about your process i mean <laughs> age 18 doing all this stuff and like looking back on it very really helped me decide that i didn't want to be on stage anymore i wanted to be in, in, a, in a more um i saw, I saw a more holistically creative role i suppose um but yeah and i think looking back on it I want to be her, you know, I want to be that person who can just go, oh yeah, just, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll, because I benefited from someone doing that and going that mad and getting us to do that. And then, then, the, then the rest, I suppose, is history, because you know the rest. I, I went to Aberystwyth University and um, yeah. Yes, we'll, we'll come to that. Um, you've touched on the fact that you uh, wrote um, uh, a musical by the time of your A2 year, or in your A2 year, not to blow your trumpet or anything. Um, tell us a bit more about that actual show, and, and, and what would you say you've learned since that would inform the process if you were to write it again? God. Um, so we, it was written as a group, you know, so we, there was, I, I'm going to get this all wrong now, so if anybody who was involved in that process is watching, I apologise, just endlessly for the gross misrepresentation I'm going to make of this process. But this is my recollection of it. There we are. I think I've covered myself there with a, a good solid politician's answer. Um, so there was about 15 of us, I think, in that group. And of that group, 10 of us, I think, were sort of the hardcore ones who were going, yes, we're going to definitely make this work. Um, now, as you well know, I love musical theatre. I am can carry a tune 
I, but other than that, I have no musical ability whatsoever. I am aware that there are dots and lines on a page and when they go up, it goes higher and when they go down, it gets lower. Sometimes they're longer, sometimes they're shorter. Other than that, I'm not musically gifted at all. Um, and so I decided I'd take on the book and the scenes and sort of find that area of it and what the story was. And I can't really remember. I remember a mass brainstorm. I vividly remember writing lots of ideas on one of those, um, I'm sure we all experienced them at school in some way, those flip whiteboards that you know you could rotate round. Um, and we all wrote loads of ideas on this. I just, I, and I can't remember what the other options were now, but we settled on basically the life story of Dick Turpin, the famous highwayman, because there was actually quite a lot of really interesting things about his life and how he'd managed to do all these incredible things. Um, and then we just sort of theatricalized it. So we created this, this love triangle between him and this um, uh, woman who was uh, a maid in the house of a man who, um, if I remember correctly, he like was, Dick's like tutor like um, fought him and then later on became really pivotal to get him convicted. Um, so that was in there. Um, but this maid in his house was Dick's first wife. But he also had this love affair with this other woman. And then because it's musical theatre, we then introduced that there was one token woman in Dick's gang who, who had un an unrequited relationship with him. So already you can see it's got classic separate notes. And then we just basically went through and went, what's in a musical? What numbers do you have in a musical? And then we wrote our versions of them. Um, so, you know, the generic everyone's in the pub song. Um, the uh, let's have, let's in the, in the, in the, uh, in the memories of the great uh, I'm a smile. Um, let's have, let's have a, a ballet to finish at one. Um, so we had a, a, of course there was, of course, but it was either that or our version of, you know, one day more. And that was never going to, that was never going to happen with our, uh, our low level music ability and then and then within that you get there's three women they've got to have a trio at some point why don't they have a trio where they've all received a letter from Dick Turpin he's got he's got to have a thing in the jail at the end you know there's got to be a um some kind of funeral sequence or there's got to be a bit that happens around him hanging himself where he gets himself hung. It, all those kind of things just sort of naturally came about uh and then you got the whole thing was then told through the narrative voice of um, Swiftnik, which was his like psychic, basically. Um, for one, it's very, um, you know, and then there was a whole like subplot there about actually how Dick ignored him a lot of the time, sort of discarded mm. his advice, and he we tried to write a sort of semi touchstone sort of. Kind. I mean, looking back on it now, in terms of like actually answering the question you asked. What would I do differently? Um, I don't know. I don't think I would. If I was going to do the, the show again now, there's so much stuff I'd get rid of. And it would all be about trimming it down and making it tighter and, um, you know, ensuring that the, um, there was just a coherent creative voice throughout it. Because there were so many people contributing to the story um, and we worked in a very um, democratic way. Um, and we all contributed, it just narratively and the, 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 the creative voice wasn't coherent enough, you know, and because actually then as all the students, we were creating it together and then directing it and choreographing and music directing it. There was no one kind of going, 
well, actually, that doesn't work. That needs to go. That needs to go. You know, it was, it, we were all like, oh, no, I created that bit. That can stay in. And so-and-so created that bit. That needs to stay in. That's their bit. That's the bit they did. So there was, you know, there is a sort of a cruel reality now that I look at and go, there is so much extra stuff in there that doesn't need to be. And if we got rid of it and not been so precious, I think we'd have created something else. You know, but it's, it's just, you know, it's being wise after the event, isn't it? Like at the time you look at that and you go, my God, we wrote show in <clears throat> six months. In six months, we'd written this show and ready and we're in rehearsal and, you know, take note, theatrical Ooh. world. Six months, guys, six months, you know? Um, I don't know why I said it like that. I mean, I, it's completely unrealistic, but you know, we, that, that, that's kind of, I just, I suppose that vaguely answers the question. It does, yeah. Um, so after that, you, you went to, to Wales, Aberystwyth, where you studied in a, in a fine drama department, stuffed to the gunnels with top class academics and practitioners, and Adrian McKeer. Um, I always remember you as a, as a very attentive student, uh, but one who, although a um, perfectly good performer, had always had at, at least one eye towards directing. Um, what is it about the director's role that appeals to you over and above performance? Power. I thought that might be the case, but yeah. <laughs> no, um, I think it's, um, I don't know, I think there's just, for me personally, there's just something more satisfying about the mo being on, on, on the, being sat in the audience so and you, and you don't get that privilege as an actor unless you're in a long-running show and you're able to let your understudy go on uh, and you can sit and watch that happen from the audience and experience that show um you know but or, or you know or your the big star name is able to do that able to see the show before they go in and experience what that feels like to be watching it you know and i i just never got the same thrill i being on stage um and getting that response from the audience as you do when you are sat in the auditorium with them and going oh my god this 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 is how it feels this is how this production feels to someone um yeah, so that I feel I, that's, I suppose that's why I always felt a little bit more attraction to that and a bit more, um, I think you just got, you've got a little bit more, it's just a different relationship between you and the people as well in, in the production. You get to experience it in a very different way, I suppose, is what it boils down to. And you get to have those conversations with people and, and but also there's like, there's like a, I suppose one of the things I always quite I've always quite liked is order and organizing things and you get to do that a little bit more you get to be going right this is this is what the process is this is you know I've got a view of where this is going and what it's going to look like and I can help people get there or I can but you're always surprised as well aren't you it's not like you're trying to get them to go down a um, no you have to play it like this route you go oh okay that you're taking me that way great I'm going to respond in this way and this is where the show is going to take me and, um, yeah, I suppose that's sort of why. But ultimately, it comes back to being able to experience what you've created in a way that when you're on stage, you can't. Mm. Um, when you were an undergraduate, um, 
you you also directed a, uh, a musical each year for the three years through of course outside of of your your program um often at your own expense um these for the the, the sake of, of posterity where, where tick tick boom uh, bat boy and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum um what informed your programming choices at that time of your life um <clears throat> all three are different actually all three had different kind of um births in terms of that choice i suppose so tick tick boom i was sort of handed um by the musical theater society i was um i went and pitched them a few other ideas and they said yes we'd love for you to be involved but would you mind coming on board and co-directing this production with someone else um so i was handed that but then sort of went right well how do i make this into something that I would like to direct and uh, because that was my precocious mind as an undergraduate was like well this this show isn't good enough I must make it I must solve it and make it into what I want um uh which was fun you know and it was really it was really exciting to expand that and build that from a three-person show to being an 11 person show you know we we did a lot of hard work on making that work in that format um and I sort of fell in love with that sort of more intimate theatrical setting so that was tick tick boom so that was sort of a <clears throat> a classic producer giving you something to create in um bat boy was the one that i first sort of went out and was going i'm doing my own thing and i heard one song from that show one song and it was the end of the first act which is comfort and joy and for those of you that don't know it's it, it's bat it's it's the it's the it's the musical comedy equivalent of um one day more basically they've written it's it's almost a it's not quite a parody but it's a pastiche number isn't it really um and i'd heard it and i was like who who on earth writes this who sits down and goes well we're just gonna write one day more but in a different way for our show and so that made me sort of find out who Lawrence O'Keefe was and then look properly into the story and I went oh do you know what this is Larks this will be fun um so that's kind of where that came in and I and it just struck me as being something a bit different you know um I always think that uh, particularly I felt as an undergraduate that student theatre had a certain sort of um and I don't know, I don't know if you felt the same thing, but had a certain sort of, you know, you had to fall into this kind of requirement. This is what you should be doing. Doing these angry, angry plays or um, these really edgy things or, you know, and, yeah. and let's have full frontal nudity. And let's drop, let's you let's, let's drop in this horrendous word in the first scene. Kind of get everyone going. Um, I was doing musical theatre, <laughs> um, you know. Um, and I thought, actually, this show is quite, edgy but also it's really fun like no one's going to leave this theater being profoundly changed by this show but they are going to have an absolute riot of an evening they are going to have absolute joy and frankly you know it's all about you know loving oneself and loving other people you know um and also this is my opportunity to do something a bit different you know show that a show that requires really in reality you need a you need a bit it's a big budget show it's a big budget show. and i was scrapping around in my student loan and had about 400 quid um and you go i could, I could do a 400 quid I can, I can do this on 400 quid i mean 
I'll do it in a week. They're doing a week. Do a week. A case of Prosecco, and it's in a week. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, it was that kind of madness, I think. And I, that kind of appealed to me as a theatre maker at the time of going, how do you take something that is clearly large scale and find a way of not making it large scale? And by large scale, I mean, it's not, it's not meant for a small studio that the Adagorf of 75 seats is. You know, it's not meant, you know, it needs something that has the trappings of a bigger theatrical space. Um, and then Forum was basically because I knew I was going to get bored. <laughs> I knew I was going to get, and originally I said, I'm not going to do anything in my third year. I've got to really concentrate on my degree. Um, we were done. Looking back, I was just lying to myself. I was lying to myself. I was lying to everybody. Um, and Katie Bottoms, who is an incredible actress and at the time was the chairperson of the Musical Theatre Society, sort of um, made contact with me and said, are you, are you going to pitch anything this year? Um, I said, darling, I, I just don't think I'm going to have time. She, well, it would be looked on favourably if you did. So I, did, I, I sort of went, I don't even know what I do because I decided I wasn't doing anything. I didn't know. And um, so I just started trawling my brain for things that were of interest, you know, were things that I, I'd either watched in the past or, um, and also I knew I would enjoy creating and were, appealed to my sensibility. And I'm, you know, I, I like, I like the, I like having an enjoyable evening in the theatre. You know, and I like other people to have an enjoyable evening in theatre. And I love a farce. I love farce. Farce is the, the single greatest theatrical form known to man. Oh, I love farce. <laughs> My fault, I fear. Um, so I, I just thought I need to, I, I need to find something that appeals to my sensibility in that regard. And like, how many musical farces are there? Um, I can think of probably three off the top of my head that actually work. And in this sort of ferment in my head, I, I remembered that years and years ago with that same music teacher um, from school, we'd done a variety show in which we'd open the show with comedy tonight from a friend in the cab on the way to the forum. And I just went, oh, that was Larks. I wonder what the rest of the show's like. Well, the rest of the show is just genius. Um, you know, it's sometimes first score properly on his own on that made it to Broadway. It's this incredible book. Um, and Zero Mostel created the character. It's got this incredible history of Tony Award winning performers taking the lead role. Um, and Frankie Howard played it when it first came to London. And you kind of go, this is this is something. This is this is something. And I, and also it just lent itself to being sent up. So not only does it stand on its own, but you could then also, the framing device that, that I created with the, the team was that it was the world's worst amateur dramatic society putting on the show. So they just had a honky-tonk piano and a percussionist and the occasional spot effect from one of the cast members. And um, there were missed time cues and they were wearing bed sheets instead of togas. Um, and the set was sort of falling down all the time. And it just lent itself to that kind of, mentality because it's that it's got that kind of energy to it anyway as a, as a piece um and that was where that came from it just appealed to me at the time and obviously it was um i say obviously people don't necessarily know when i was at university but i do and you do um but it was uh, sometimes one of one of sometimes many 
glorious birthday is. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah. Years ago. Yeah, good Lord, was it? Good Lord, it was. Um, uh, so, yeah. That was his schedule to make contact. And, yes, uh, he did. He, uh, um, a, a dear friend, close friend, um, wrote to a variety of different people. And, um, yeah, we got, we got some really positive uh, messages. And Stephen Sondheim himself wrote to the company. Uh, which obviously led to the uh, a classic hilarious moment where one of the company thought he was dead so couldn't believe that he'd written to us from beyond the grave uh but there we are um Stephen long may still be with us um but yeah but i think that's that that sort of sums up the company i had for that show where we all just were just having the most joyous time of our life in our final year at university and we'd thrown the thing together in six weeks you know it, it was that You've been involved in youth theatre from a very young age and now are a facilitator and coordinator of youth theatre activities uh, as well as directing and programming for their work and you've worked full-time in the field of youth performing arts for, for six years now. Um, what, what do you think can make the performing arts such a vital force in the lives of young people? Actually, I, you know, I've been, I've been trying to have this discussion um, in my own mind for quite some time about actually what it like how to get it down to something really pithy. So I apologize now, but this is going to be quite a rambling answer to your question because I can't really, I mean, Kelsa Pree, um, based on the rest of this interview, but um, I don't think, it's hard, like, because I, so I, when I first entered into working with young people quite a lot, um, I realized that, that, that in that dramatic space, you're able to allow young people to fail and fail spectacularly. You know, this is not new information, by the way. I'm not trying to, you know, paint myself as being someone who just discovered this incredible thing because this is not new information. We all know this is true, that um, theatrical spaces um, uh, like a drama studio or a, a workshop space or a production allow young people to fail in this way that the rest of their lives don't allow for. You know, um, there's quite, um, you know, there's a stigma to failure for young people, you know, a huge stigma. You know, if you've not, you've not achieved the grades, you've not done the best you possibly could, you know. Um, and I think the only other sort, the only other area in their lives that potentially has that, you know, you've tried, you failed, but that's great, is sport. So you're at the end of these two things where we're going, ah, you know, you can train as well as you can, but if you're in the race and the other person has trained just that little bit better uh, and they win, well, you did your best you could at that point, but you're going to go away and you're going to train and you're going to do better because you've seen, you've seen, you, you've now experienced failure and you know how that feels. And I think, I think drama is sort of the same in the sense of when young people are going in that room and you create that space, you're creating a space that allows them to fail. You know, we're in that, we, in fact, we welcome failure. You know, we say constantly, and I'm sure you're the same with, with your performers when you're directing, you know, we, 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 we welcome failure. Failure is incredibly fun and freeing. And, you know, the basis of my practice with young people is all about that. It's all about saying, get it wrong. Find ways that don't work for this scene, but let's follow them. Let's chase them. Let's chase them down this alley and, and let's beat this idea senseless. Uh, and if it gets up and runs away again, then we can keep chasing it. But if it just lies there um, and doesn't get up, then we've probably we've probably done all we could, you know. Um, 
so let's come out of this and let's go on another journey now um so i think that's that kind of underpins quite a lot of it but it's also about validation isn't it you know there's these two sides to it of going um you're gonna fail and it's gonna and you're gonna fail big and no one's gonna no one's gonna blame me for that but then we're also going yes do it and saying yes and validating their choices and finding you know, the more, the more I work in this, this sector of the industry, the more I find ways within my practice and within the work I'm doing to validate the young people's decisions, you know? Uh, because again, within their educational life, for good reason, um, they are being, you know, they have to deliver in particular areas. So there is still a right and wrong, um, but they're just delivering to a set formula, you know? Um, this is how you write an essay and it's this, 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 you know, it's peel or P or whatever it is now. Well, that's what it was when I was at school. Your paragraph structure was like point, explain, analysis, link, peel. Um, see, can even remember it now, you see, but it's like going, well, there's a formula to writing. And you think, yes, I can understand why you want me to write like that. But actually in terms of the creative process, that's a long way down the line. I've got to do all this messy stuff at the beginning and, 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 you know, have thousands of ideas and, um, and make a whole mess on the page before I can get it into some kind of ordered thing. And actually we skip that bit with young people. We kind of go, you've got the idea, now you're going to ordered. Whereas actually that bit in the middle is so important. That mess bit where we throw, throw everything around and we pick something up and we try and do something with it. Um, and young kids, like, you know, you look at, you, when I'm working with like a tiny little children, um, their creativity and the stuff they come out with is bonkers. I mean, they always want to kill everybody, which is just really fascinating. Young people are like, and then they died. And you're like, did they? Or maybe they just fell over. Um, because if they die, you finish the story. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they, the stuff they will take you to and the places that, I mean, the amount of times I've sat in session with young, really little kids who are still in primary school or still, you know, just started school and will take one of the most incredible journeys through outer space and heaven and and then right to the bottom of the sea and then some this planet over here that you've never heard of and um, that they know it really really well um and the more you keep saying yes and the more you keep validating those choices the the, the more joyous your process becomes and the more you learn from them and they learn from you and then it becomes an environment where they're able to flourish and i think because of that that is the value that youth arts bring um and we should never let that be subservient to main house and i'm using that quite in a very broad sense programming where we're talking about you know um here's this show that the adults are doing um and isn't it great that these adults are doing it? and the young people over here look what they're doing in response to that well actually that that's a bit backwards you know it's sort of saying we know better than you and you're going to learn from us and I, it was this is quite funny because I was, Ned, I was in a session on Friday with Ned Glacier, who runs Company 3, and he said the same thing. Um, you know, we shouldn't allow that to sort of be subservient to it. They should be held as the same quality, and they should be sort of going, well, actually, here's the thing the adults are and here's the thing the kids have done. And it's completely separate, but it's still as equally valid. Because if we're not validating that work, then we're already saying that there's a power structure and that this work is only exists because the adults did this other work over here. And that to me just seems, seems wrong.
I think there is an element that um, stems from um, the very source in terms of, of the funders now, because I mean, it's, it's, I know uh, filling out Arts Council applications, unless I'm showing some degree of community um, interaction with the work that I'm wanting to produce, um, I, I ain't going to get that. And youth theatre, I think, has been the lazy person's choice for where you put that community interaction in most, isn't it? You know, well, I'll just yeah. I'll do something that I can take into the schools, or we'll we'll get them to do something in response to it, and then hopefully we'll get the cash to do it. And and you're quite right; it doesn't always. Um, uh, that is not always the the way to approach it in terms of uh, letting young people feel that their work has value. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I do think it is. It's it's very much um, <clears throat> it's very much a historical thing, isn't it? You know, it's it's the the fact that um, large buildings and uh, organisations were the homes to these youth theatres, and um, so they were always seen as sort of. And that, that, what you've just described, they were that kind of community young engagement thing that was always just sort of there. And as you have rightly said, structurally, that was how that was justified, you know, but actually it doesn't need to be. Um, and it's just about being, as we've all realised across this pandemic period, it's just about kind of going, actually, let's look at this. Let's look at this. Let's talk about this. And how do we change that for the better? How do we, you know, how do we change the attitude? How do we validate this area of our sector? Because if we don't, then there is no sector ultimately because we're not encouraging people to engage with it from a young age and find that voice and that creativity. And then, and that then feeds into finding these opportunities for as many voices that have yet, as of yet been unheard, you know? And if we don't foster that by going, your work is equally valid, then we're not allowing them that opportunity to grow and flourish um, as young people. And then as the future of the industry, be that as makers, as writers, as um, actors, as musicians, as ultimately people who attend, you know, if we're not saying you are welcome here and you are validated by this process, then ultimately you can't, you know, that, that, that person's not going to want to have a relationship with the, the arts. And they're not going to encourage other people to have a relationship with the arts. So it all just becomes sort of slightly self-fulfilling. It's really hard. Do you know, it's not, it's not easy. And it's not like it's going to happen overnight because, you know, as we are constantly talking about at the minute, like change takes time. And, you know, when things are built into the system, we've got to look at how we unpack that and rebuild that. Um, and it's not going to happen overnight. And I'm not, I'm not that naive, but it would, you know, it's just nice to stick your flag in the, in, in the sand and go, this is what I think should happen. <laughs> Um, and just see what happens. Your work in youth theatre has taken you from working with 13 to 18 year olds at Eton College to a, I mean, possibly slightly less traditionally rarefied, but quite middle class offering in Cornwall to working with young people of all sorts of walks of life in your current role at, at the Sham Theatre in Cardiff. How much tailoring of what you do is required to the backgrounds and reference points of the youngsters you deal with in any given environment and, and how much of it do you say is universal well first of all you start to realize really quickly how old you are because all your like cultural reference points are just gone like you know you say oh such and such you know and they're like what 
I mean, I made some reference to MySpace the other week in a session, and I may as well have just spoken about, you know, quantum physics as far as they were concerned. Um, so I, it's, I, think, I think this also comes back to the other thing we're talking about. So there's a lot of universal things. You know, there's a lot of kind of going, right, actually, what universally appeals to young people? Um, and it's like, it's honesty. It's laughter and fun. You know, um, it's creativity, it's ownership, you know, it's finding all those things that are universal. And generally, those things are sort of just the things that underpin my practice. Um, but in, and I don't think I've had to massively tailor and change. Like, I have, I have naturally changed uh, because you, you're responding to the people you're in the room with. So <clears throat> certain reference points, as you rightly identified, don't necessarily equate across the board. You know, um, I remember very distinctly having to explain, for instance, at Eton, the value of, you know, I did the lady killers with um, some students there and having to explain to them about the value of the money that they were stealing in that, you know, getting their heads around that that was a lot of money was actually quite difficult. Um, whereas actually if I'd done that same play in Cornwall, it, the, I wouldn't have had to have that conversation, but I'd have had to have a, a, com a different conversation with them about um, the music that, that it was so intrinsic to that play. They would not, that's not in their frame of reference. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's it just literally depends on, and then when I'm in, like now in my current role in, in Cardiff, it's kind of finding that, find, trying to find the, their voice within plays that are intrinsically not written for their voice. You know, where we work with a lot of play text um, and quite often we have these really interesting discussions about the fact that they feel like, um, well, first of all, they, and I think this is universal for young people, um, we, 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 there's a big conversation happening about um, people's voices in theatre, quite rightly. Um, but the one thing that has been said for quite a long time, and I've been saying for, certainly for the last four or five years, is that we keep handing young people plays written by adults <laughs> and going, this is what you sound like. Um, these are the words that you say. And uh, quite often you have these really interesting discussions with young people who go, I would never say that like that. And I would never say that like that. Um, so it becomes quite interesting. And then and navigating the other thing in Wales is that I'm really, really keen to get as much Welsh language as the young people use it into the place. So quite often we'll translate sections and let the young people translate them um, into their use of the Welsh language, which is very different from like an academic use of the, of the Welsh language. I don't, I don't want to be misrepresented. I know it's not a, a situation unique to, to my, my job right now, but it's just, that's what I'm being, I'm facing, you know, and I just think we are doing a huge disservice to young people by not saying, yeah, do it. Find, find how you put your language and your view of the world into this play, because we do it with adults. This comes back to my, the previous question. We do it with adults. We talk about how they find their way in a play. So let's do the same with these young people. And that's not being, you know, it's, it's, it is a fine line to tread because it's about then going, well, actually, but how do we respect the, the, the original text? How do we, uh, you know, respect the original intentions of this play, but also make it relevant to you and, and, your, and your experience of life, you know? Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's an ever-changing feast. Well, I think that, that it also leads on to my next question, which, which is that you, I mean, you work sort of beyond the youth um, category as well with, with communities and what's termed creative engagement. 
um, which is one of those terms that has sort of popped up in the last however many years, and which I think the, the, the nuts and bolts of which are probably familiar to people, but not necessarily when put in that way. Like, can you expand on that term a bit? What, what does your current job involve? What difference can you make to lives outside the immediate impact zone of a theatre? I think it's about, <clears throat> it comes back to that thing. I'm, I, so I talk a lot about I, when I lecture, um, and I don't mean lecture like, you know, lecture. I mean, like when I'm invited by um, the universities here in Cardiff to go and lecture their students on my practice and what I do and how that works. I think a lot of people would probably see that what I do is out outreach. Um, it's probably the easiest sort of word they're all outreach participation creative engagement it's all it's all really similar in the same sort of area you know it's just whatever venue or organization chooses to use their terminology for in that um i think again it's about coming to people and talking to people and saying like you know how do you how do you feel about this thing and like is there anything we can do creatively to help you respond to that and then getting them in touch either with people that are uh, work for um, the chairman um, or are people who are you know are, are professional freelancers and are able to give people the contact they need I, I look at it as being so legacy is probably the word the watchword and i'm sure that uh, you know you're talking about your arts council funding applications um i don't you know i i will put my hands in the air and say don't really know much about the arts council england funding applications um but certainly a lot of the funding that we're talking about in wales you know we, we have to think about the legacy of the work like what is the impact beyond the work we're doing now um and it's i talk about legacy in two forms like this like hard legacy and soft legacy and for me hard legacy is this is like the fundamental thing whatever that is so if that's the play or the performance or the event um or it might be the play text that the uh, the participants have created um or the visual arts or whatever it's that hard legacy is the thing that we can all go back to and it could be just photographs or video footage or whatever it is but that's like the hard legacy that everyone can kind of recall back to and in 20 years time we can go right back to and go this thing that happened this is what it looked like and sounded like and you know and this soft legacy and soft legacy is the impact of the work so it's going right well i've created this project and these people have taken part in this project um and i have no unless i become the world's best stalker um, uh, I can't tell you if someone in 5, 10, 15 years time is still going to have a relationship with the arts um, or, and theatre or cinema or whatever it is that we've worked on them with. I can't tell you if that's going to happen because I don't know. Um, and it might be that circumstance now means they can't just go, great, I'm going to turn up at the theatre. I'm going to do this. You know, obviously circumstance now means they can't do that. But I mean, in, you know, in, in a broad thing. Um, so I just think that that is such an immeasurable thing. You can't possibly sit down and go, right, how do we know what this person is going to do in 10 years time? And, the, you know, and I think it's that soft legacy is the hard thing to kind of get to grips with. Um, and that for me is like about the impact that we have on the wider community. It's about setting up that relationship and just then going, right, 
we've done everything we can right now. We have, you know, we've set them up with their relationship with um, the arts. We have provided them with the opportunity to engage. We have pointed them in the direction of how they can access this um, by removing obstacles and barriers that they may face. It's now up to them. Like, we, you know, I'm not going to um, force someone to turn up and engage if they don't feel inclined to. Like, they, they have to do it on their terms. So I think that, in that when you're talking about the wider impact of creative engagement across a community, it's about just making people aware of the arts and telling them they can have a relationship with it in whatever capacity they want to. Um, you know, we, <clears throat> we all know that sort of semi-famous image about equity and equality and um, the three people stood behind the fence trying to look over in the boxes. Um, I'm sure you yeah. know that image, you know. Um, and I always think there's actually another image at the end of that, which is kind of going, well, you've given people the opportunity. It's now their choice whether or not they tear the fence down, you know, which would seem like the obvious solution at this stage. You know, you've kind of gone, right, well, we've shown you what would happen if we spit the boxes out. Um, here's the hammer. Here's the saw tear the fence down that you can see what's over the fence now so and we've shown you how you know we've shown you that and helped you see that now here are the tools to tear that fence down so you can go and do it yourself and i think that that's kind of in a very pretentious and convoluted way i think that's what the impact of creative engagement is you know it's going into communities talking to people find those connections and then saying this is a space for you please, please engage, but I'm not going to force you to do that if you don't feel welcome. Your work in your current role has also led you towards writing adaptations of uh, novels for your work, first with the, the Bangers and Chips Explosion, which I gather is with the, the original author's blessing, uh, going to work its way through the process of being published as a co-credited script. And um, more recently, although COVID, I think, possibly got in the way of this, uh, Treasure Island. Um, what interests you in adaptation as a written form, and, and what does that bring you that original work doesn't? Um, I suppose you did sort of start from the point of saying, this is why I created the work originally. I, you know, um, as you well know, having been someone who, who lectured me and had on occasion need to read my written work, um, I am not what one would describe as um, a writer. Um, I write, but I'm not a writer. And I wouldn't ever sort of, it's something I do, but I wouldn't say it's my thing, if that makes sense. Um, I, certainly some of the writers I know, I wouldn't even like to, you know, bracket myself. However. I have to say, though, I mean, in speaking in your defence, I have read... Um, and leaving aside the academic work, actually none of which of yours, I, oh no, I did read, I second marked some of your work, but the, um, no, but I mean, I've read your creative stuff, which is, um, which, which I don't think you give yourself enough credit for, and I don't say that lightly, as you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't give credit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why would I? I'm a producer. But the, um, yeah, it's, um, no, I, I just I felt the need to, to intervene there. Your work is wonderfully adequate. <laughs> and that, that faint praise is all I need. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I turn a lot, again, this all comes back to everything we were talking about previously. I'd, I have a growing frustration at um, the fact that we have 
society, um, in terms of our theatrical society, we are the big, big organization. So generally speaking, and this is very broad and sweeping, so, um, you know, get your brushes out and sweep up my broad sweeping comments. Um, the national companies are the ones that can afford to do, we're going to have 25 people in this company. Um, um, and we're going to have all this other stuff. So we can have 20, uh, 27,000 named characters because we can afford to do that. And we've got enough talent on stage to do that. And brilliant. It's brilliant that they're doing that. Um, but the majority of stuff that was, you know, that gets out there and gets published, in my experience, that is of a quality that I think reflects what I want to do with our young people um, and has enough balance to it is like is smaller ensemble plays um so there's this to me there's this huge gap in the middle where we're going well actually what once we've done those big big plays that the national companies have commissioned and created what's left to do are we just do we just cycle through those five or six it's like when you see amateur companies um you know bless them you know, I, when I was growing up, I think every single amateur company in Northamptonshire within 18 months of each other did a production of Fiddler on the Roof. And as worthy as that show is, there's only so many times you can sit through it, you know? Um, and I say that as a musical theatre lover and someone who I loves that show, but I, I, I got about three in and I was like, that I, I'm sorry, I know what's gonna happen in the end, you know, um, this is great, but they're going to get thrown out of the village and spoiler, the fiddler follows them. Um, do you know what I mean? And so I, I, I basically sat down and went, what, what is missing from this canon? And it's the plays that are about and for young people, but also fill a lot of requirements because we get the, you know, the incredible work in the National Theatre does and the connections team, um, those plays tend to fall into this kind of very angry young people zone of kind of going, we need to say all this stuff about our experience and how terrible our lives are right now and how we're being squashed by this and this and this pressure. And actually that's great. And there's a place for that as well. But I wanted to find something that was appealing in a fun and light and frothy way um, for young people. And there aren't that many plays on a scale that means everyone gets a fair crack of the whip. You know, uh, I'm all for Spear Carrier One coming in and telling us that the battle has been lost. But that just feels like you're doing a bit of a disservice to that child, that they rush in with their spear. My lord, the battle is lost. That's it. Um, feels a bit of a disservice to them as a, as, as a performer. So there's lots of kind of, there were lots of these things that were bubbling away in my head and I read a lot of plays by incredibly talented writers and very well-known writers and nothing was kind of, nothing kind of appealed and sat in the right place and I remembered this book The Bangers and Chips Explosion that I had read as a child and had bought in one of those the library are selling all the old books sales you know for 10 10 pence or something um and I thought oh this would be love this would be great as a play I wonder if someone's already adapted into the play because it just it just screams to be theatricalized for young people it's set in a school there's copious amounts of young people involved there's also these ridiculously grotesque and caricature characters you know Bruff who's the, the writer Bruff Gerling and um, you know there's there's something almost rolled out about the, the, these grotesque adult characters he's created and 
they but they're also so on point of like how children would see these people you know so the, the children see through the inept head teacher and they see how inept he is so that's how he's written in the book you know the school secretary who they know organized everything keeps everyone on track is the heroine of the story spoiler um because that's how the children see her so everything's written it all, again i i can't help going back to roald dahl it's written like he wrote from the perspective of the young people in his stories and found it's a language for them so i then pitched this idea to the young people and said does this feel like something you would like to do if i scraped together a script from this is it something that you would be interested in doing do you think it would be a nice fun counterpoint to doing our connections piece which is that sort of more hard-hitting stuff um and without fail they were all like yeah we'd love to do something fun it just feels like we always have to do these really angry plays um about you know and we'd like to do something light and frothy um so I went away and wrote it and adapted it and it was one of those joyous books where actually there wasn't really much I had to do you know it was lifting direct from what he'd written on the page um there was some reallocation we created these the the all the children became this children's narrative voice throughout all of it um and we just set that the whole thing then it's just set in the school and happens in the school and you get the bonkers things of the chief police constable turning up in drag because he thinks that's how he's going to get into the into the school and um i think the only thing i added to bruff script um to bruff's story from for the stage adaptation was just w the conclusion for one character which in the book you don't need it, you don't need it it's you know almost a throwaway but in terms of the stage adaptation you kind of just needed that extra little bit of theatricality to end someone's story you know um i just really enjoyed doing it and then we did it and i went i'm gonna have to do another one now because we've sort of set ourselves up that this is how we do it um and Treasure Island sort of appeal. It's a proper swashbuckling adventure. There's all the, there's also slightly part that is going, how do I skill build for these young people? How do we find different things to tickle their theatrical fancy and also allow them to come away from it going, I learned this thing. So Bangers and Chips was all about learning about working in the, in the semi-round, that that was the space. They had to work in the semi-round to tell this story. Um, it wasn't, I say semi round because it wasn't quite thrust and it wasn't quite all in the round, but it sort of was anyway. Um, so let's just go with semi round and let's pretend that that was like really profound and professional. Um, so whereas Treasure Island is about like it's this swashbuckling adventure, so it's actually which has got this true kind of um, I don't know, like growing up story within it and finding oneself and like, you know, realizing that you were, you didn't need all these people to be who you need to be. Mm -hmm. um, haven't quite pinned it down fully yet. It's sort of, we're in a redraft stage now because I've taken the time to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Because of COVID, I just sort of went back and went, right, let's, let's do a redraft. I've got time to do it. So it's had a little bit of a reorder and refiddle and it's a fast book, like in, in, in terms of scale and story. Um, so, yeah, I suppose that's, it, it's what started to appeal to me initially about ad adapting was that ability to give everybody a voice. But as, the, as I further moved into it, it's that 
it's taking that thing that's in your mind and putting it on stage and you're able to do the bit in between and craft and choose and take that story and re re reinvigorate it for a different mode and form. Um, and that sort of appeals to my sensibility, I suppose, as well, of kind of visually taking something from the book and not being disappointed by what happens in the end, as so often you can be when you go and watch the film or theatre adaptation of a book that you know and love and go, but that's not how it was in my head. Um, you know, so yeah, I suppose that's sort of where it's, it's kind of got two starting points. And I think it also sort of just feeds into my laziness, which is someone else has created the character and the plot and you just kind of have to reorder it and edit. Like that's just, that just appeals to my inner lazy person, I suppose. Um, yeah. yeah. Mentioned taking the time because of COVID to, to, to redraft, and, and obviously the pandemic has changed a lot of how all of us in the arts world uh, are working. Um, what's what's changed for you? How are you how are you adapting to it? And and both within and beyond COVID, what, what do you think are the the major challenges that the arts and its engagement with communities are facing? It's a nice, nice small question. Um, so for me personally, it, it was just, it, there's the, I'm going to try to answer this question, but I might like, rather than trying to answer it logically, I might blur the lines a bit. So just, um, uh, cause it's quite, for me personally at the minute, there's just small changes. So it's kind of, you know, right, we're going to move this program online. This program's going to be digital. This program's going to be an analog program. Um, uh, we're going to have to send out information to people about this. Um, I mean, that initial bit in the first lockdown, um, we just, everything stopped. You know, we sent, we kept in touch with people. We sent out a lot of written stuff, a lot of what I would traditionally say would be, you know, resource-based activity. That's probably the best way to describe it. Um, went out to people to keep engaging with, um, and a lot, of, and then we did some Zoom sessions with some of our other programs. Um, and then we normally have a hiatus across the summer anyway. So that was quite useful because it gave us a chance to sort of take stock and really look at how the programs would develop. So um, our youth theatre program is now a blend, blended learning. So we're using a series of Zoom sessions and pre recorded tutorials. Um, we are uh, we have a program, Introduction to Playwriting, which is for 15 to 18 year olds. So that's all digital. It's all gone online. Um, and that's just a series of um, one, like we've commissioned playwrights to talk, talk, talk to the young people about their practice. So they do a bit of an introduction and they give a couple of exercises. But that also comes with a, a written resource as well um, that sort of backs that up. So in the short term, we've, we've done that. There's... Um, the big, the main programming has sort of become audio drama based, which is great. And we're all, we've rolled that out. And we'd adapted a program that we were literally weeks away, weeks away from performing just before lo uh, lockdown. And with lockdown, we adapted and we were working with um, a local college and we changed that into an audio play. That was a huge challenge. Um, and I think that that kind of moved, that movement has sort of swept along for the rest of our programming as well, which is really good. Um, and that's one of those very healthy moments where um, we proved it worked for our department and then we were able to pass that up 
to the main programming. Um, and we're doing another one of those during this period, doing, leading up to Christmas. I think the difficult thing about looking forward it, to what will come next is trying to be analog in a digital world. Um, because we've all kind of switched into this mode of working of going, we can put it on online, people can still access it. And actually that is still a big obstacle for a lot of people. Um, it's so it's got, we've got to find ways to adapt what we do into, uh, you know, how do we find those moments of analog, as I call them, within a digital world. So that is simply the person that doesn't have internet access or um, it doesn't have enough data on their data package to stream whatever it is you're asking or um, you know, doesn't have mobile signal, or only has a phone, doesn't, you know, particularly some of the older people we work with, a lot of them aren't as tech savvy. You know? So I think there's a big question to be asked about how we, um, how we create long-term programs that work in that environment where we still are within a social distance environment um, and we're still able to get people to access that. I think there's a big question that we're not currently comfortable with answering, which is, um, you know, how is somebody's home a safe space in the same way that a rehearsal room is? Um, so there's that, that, there's a very interesting debate, I think, to be had there um, about how we, you know, how we help people and support people in that way. Um, so, I, yeah, it's quite, I think there's a lot, I don't have any answers, but I know that these are the challenges we're going to be facing. Um, and I think until we really know from both uh, both a senior artistic leadership, so arts councils level, and from a national government level, what the next steps are for arts venues and arts practice. I think it's very hard to work out um, how participation and outreach will work in that world. Um, you know, and until we have some of those answers, we're very much doing the best we can in the circumstances we are you know, being very reactive rather than proactive, you know, and that's, that's never easy um, because we know that we're missing people and people are missing us. Um, but I think until we know, we have a bit of a clearer sense of what that looks like, it's going to be really hard to go say, this is how we provide. Um, yeah. So and that wasn't very positive. I'm very sorry. Like, but I think that's just where we're at, you know. We're almost adapting. Um, what is next on your professional to-do list? What do, you, what do you still want to achieve? Notoriety. <laughs> uh, what's next? I don't know. I genuinely don't know what's next. Um, I've, um, I think when I first left um, drama school in, good Lord, 2012, I think it was 2012, um, I'm sure your researchers will, you know, sort that out in the edit. Um, but uh, 2012, I think it was, I left drama school. And I was going, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a director. I'm going to run this venue. I'm gonna do, 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 do. And, you, and, then, and then, you know, very, very quickly, those hopes, dreams and ambitions um, dissipated um, when the realities of that world became home. You know, when you've when you've gone education to education to education and you've sort of sat in that little bubble and gone, I can be a success. Um, and then you come out and go, okay, there are many other hundreds of people who are also saying they can be a success. Um, you know, it's, it's got, you know, big fish, small pond situation, isn't it? And then small, 
tiny minuscule bacteria in vast ocean is reality what it feels like so what's next professionally I don't know I, and I don't really I've given up trying to think that far ahead you know I just think something will come along and appeal to my sensibility at that moment I will apply and it will either happen or it won't and then I'll go okay that's the next thing um I'd love I'd love to get um, I suppose on you know I'd love to get the plays that I'm adapting and changing published um, but again if that doesn't happen it doesn't happen they're still there sitting and I can go back to them at some other point um, so yeah I don't know I it's a really terrible answer to quite an interesting question but I, I don't know what's next and I think whatever is next is whatever's next well it's remarkably honest <laughs> that's, uh, that's we'll always find its reward um, as with all uh, 21 of our previous um, guests on here, we pay tribute to the late James Lipton of Inside the Actors Studio by, by concluding with um, uh, a, a little quick-fire section, um, which just gives a bit of insight into everybody, just level the playing field a bit. Yeah. Um, what's your favourite word? Follow. What's your least favourite word? <laughs> moist. I'm sure someone else has probably said that, but moist, moist always makes me feel a bit. Uh, what turns you on? Ooh, laughter. And what turns you off? Invading my personal space without permission. <laughs> what, what sound or noise do you love? Oh, mm. um, should we give the should we give the like the pretentious theatrical answer? You can give whatever answer you want. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There's a sound. What sound do I love? Oh no! I tell you the sound I do love. That little the little click, um, when a kettle has just boiled, because you think, ah, I'm gonna have a coffee. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, um, that little, do you know that really, that low level, being serious now, that low level, like, hum or squeak or background sound that just cuts through and distracts you from doing anything. Um, what is your favourite swear word? Oh, what is my, oh, twat. I love a good twat. I'm sure someone else has probably said that, but twat is so great. I don't think we have had twat, actually. Twat is great. Isn't twat great? Great word, twat. Yeah. Because you just you can just use it in such so many different ways. There's there's a tremendous sort of inbuilt aggression of it as well. Isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's those hard T's, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? You know, I I'm really. <laughs> This is going to be so bizarre. I'd really like to do something the complete opposite of what I do. So something like um, like a builder or something like that that's like the complete polar opposite. <laughs> and what profession would you absolutely never want to do? Oh, I, I wouldn't want to do anything medical because I just couldn't, I couldn't, I, I admire our um, the people who work in the medical profession because I just think 
I couldn't do it. I couldn't go into work every day knowing that potentially the decisions I'm making are changing someone's life for better or worse. Uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't do that. Um, when your time comes, if you discover that heaven exists, what would you like to hear said to you on arrival? Oh, you're on the list. <laughs> um, I, I have to tell our audience here that the, the one thing that both surprises and slowly disappoints me is that at no point in any of this, any of those sort of very open questions or any of it, has Timothy mentioned the, you know, I thought we might get it on sound or noise or professionally you'd like to attend. I thought there'd be something train related. No, um, do you know what? No, no, because that's, that's about smell. You didn't ask me a question about smell. That's oh. smell. Like, there's, um, there's, no, there's nothing more exciting in the, wor the world than that, that the smell of, um, of a steam engine. The sound, yeah, the sound is one thing, but the smell is the, is the thing. And anyone listening and watching who, who is a, a train buff um, would, would, I'd like to think would agree with me. There's just something about that, the smell of a steam engine that you can't replicate even. And then the smell of, you know, um, the upholstery in, in, in a train carriage. Um, there's nothing like that. There's nothing. I, yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I see what you're saying and I hate, and I'm sorry that I disappointed you, but I feel like that, that little bit there, um, that semi-orgasmic state that I had there about train smell would probably, you know, counterbalance your disappointment. Well, yeah, it has. That's very much. Um, the, um, and uh, for anybody needing uh, to fill a slot in their online programme of uh, talks and lectures, um, Tim can give a really, truly fascinating chat about the uh, switching points between diesel and electric on uh, certain uh, parts of the London railway network. Um, and uh, he's also available for weddings, funerals and bar mitzvahs. On which note, Timothy J. Howe, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. No, thank you. You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with Timothy J. Howe. The show was written, presented and edited by Paddy Cooper, theme music by Curtis Batson, Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton, the Shaman Theatre, and Gruff Girling. The show was executive produced on behalf of Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Staden. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 